Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of the book of Romans. We are coming to the end, if you will, of the first major section of the book of Romans, if you don't include the introduction. Chapter 1 started with the introduction, and then halfway through chapter 1, he switched gears. Basically, if we're going to talk about the gospel and the good news, we have to talk about the bad news first. So starting at the midpoint of chapter 1, he had the discussion about all of humanity knew about God, should have known about God, but because of their desire to not worship God, they went chasing after other things. They worshipped the created world instead of the creator. So they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. So God gave them over, and we saw the downward spiral of sin in the world, where we are disobedient to God, so God removes the restraints and lets us do what we want to do. And that was the rest of chapter 1. In chapter 2, we started talking about, well, I'm not as bad, or, well, there's somebody worse, or, look at me, aren't I pretty good? And he says, no, you're not. Why do you keep judging other people for sin that you're committing also? And we, last week, ended up talking about the Jews, the second half of chapter 2, where it was talking about, but wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, we are part of the covenant. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we're circumcised. Isn't that weird enough for you? And the answer is no, because if you are circumcised but don't keep the law, you might as well not bother being circumcised. Whereas if you keep the law and are not circumcised, that would have been the Gentile community, that's better than just having the sign but not the underlying reality. And we talked last week about the fact that God has written his law on the hearts of all humanity. It's not that we don't know. It's that we know and we refuse to listen. And that was the end of chapter 2. So we pick up at verse 1 of chapter 3. He's going to continue to talk about the Jewish community. Okay? And in chapter 3, he's going to ask a series of questions. I mean, I think I've told you before, you know, when I am preparing a lesson, I sit there and I go through the verses and, you know, what does this mean? And then I start asking questions. You know, what does this mean about this? What about this? What about this? And some of those questions get folded into the lesson. Some of the questions I know somebody's going to ask, so I try to prepare. And some of the questions I just hope nobody brings up because I don't have a clue what the answer is. I'm real good at asking questions. So Paul is anticipating the questions that people are going to ask. So throughout this chapter, and actually throughout the whole book, you see the same form over and over again. In this chapter, he's going to ask a series of questions, but what about? Because he knows this is what people are going to ask. Some of them are legitimate questions. Some of them are just, you know, kind of questions like, well, duh, of course we know the answer to that. But even the questions we know the answers to, we oftentimes disregard the answer that we know it to be true. So then, verse 1 of chapter 3, and you know, right, when you're reading the Bible, that those, in the original, the chapters and verses, those markings weren't in there. This really is a continuation of the previous chapter. 
as if there were no break. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? If being circumcised isn't enough to get you in, what's the point of it? What were, I mean, why did God ask Abraham or order Abraham to do this in the first place if it's not good enough to get you into heaven? What is the value? What is the value of being a Jew in the first place? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's interesting because he says, first, here's an answer. And then he only gives one answer. You know, he's like he's starting a list and decides the first answer is good enough. He'll just stop right there. He actually continues the list later on. Uh, Here's chapter 9. There's a whole list of things that are of value if you are a Jew. But the primary one that he's talking about here in chapter 3 is that you were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that they had the word. Over and over again, God speaking to Moses, well, God speaking to Abraham, God speaking to Abraham's descendants, God speaking to Moses, Moses taking the people out of Egypt, going up on the mountain, receiving the law, the prophets, all of this was the word of God transmitted to the people. And that's a good thing. That has value. It's an interesting discussion because, you know, we sit there and think, okay, if something doesn't save us, what's the point of doing it? Well, there are still good things to do. You know, if I gave one of you $100 and I gave another of you $1,000, that's the person who has $1,000 has an advantage. Now, if both of you go out to the casino and lose it all, well, that's not my fault. I gave you an extra advantage. You just blew it. In fact, you blew it more than the other person. If anything, you are more guilty. But that's not to say that giving you $1,000 wasn't a good thing. The fact that God entrusted them with his word was of great value and significance. It wasn't some trivial thing. In fact, it's of great value and significance to us today that God gave them the word and we have it in what we refer to as the Old Testament. We spent all of last year working our way through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we barely got into Joshua It is of great value to be a Jew, to be circumcised, to be part of the covenant if it's done by faith. God told the nation of Israel, walk in my ways and I will bless you. And Israel said, hmm, let's go after something else. Huh. So, What if some were unfaithful? That's a stretch. Lots of them were unfaithful. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What does that mean? Does the fact that the nation of Israel refused to follow the will of God prove that the will of God is worthless? What's the point? 
We're going to see this repeatedly. What is the point of God telling us to do something if he knows we can't do it? What is the point of giving the law if he knows we're all going to look at it and go after something else? What is the point of it? Why would he do it? And in fact, if my unfaithfulness to the law proves that it can't be done, does that make God unfaithful because he gave a law that we couldn't keep? And the answer is no. God is faithful. God is going to keep his promises all the time. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. We're going to see this phrase throughout the book. I mean, that's the polite way of saying, heck no. You know what heck is, right? That's the place that people go who don't believe in gosh. (laughs) Think about that for a while. It'll come to you. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified by your words and prevail when you are judged. Let everyone be a liar. God is going to be true. Everyone can break the covenant. God will keep his promises. It is interesting because today, yesterday, the day before, the day before, the day before, the day before, there have been an endless stream of people, groups, individuals, nations, churches, mosques, you name it, who say, well, God got something wrong. God messed up somehow. You know, he said this, but he should have said that. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and the serpent comes to Eve and said, did God say, and and Eve said, well, he said such and such. But, you know, the such and such wasn't exactly what God had said. It was kind of, eh, I think God kind of said this. No, he didn't say that. The answer is, all the world can lie, and that does not change God at all. God is going to be faithful. God is going to be the source, the measure of all truth. He is the plumb line that determines whether things are right and wrong. You can read books. You can read magazines. You can read scholars. You can read popular literature, you name it, you can read it. If it doesn't agree with the word of God, God's not wrong. Okay? Bottom line. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. When are we going to be judged? There will be a time when we're going to be judged. And God is going to do it faithfully, and God is going to do it in truth. Let's keep going. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Huh. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? If by doing good we bring glory to God, and if by doing wickedness we show God's glory, then what's the difference? 
He's actually going to spend all of chapter 6 dealing with this issue because chapter 5 ends with the question, well, if grace abounds where sin abounds, maybe we should sin more so we should get more grace. Doesn't that make sense? And Paul's answer in the, ver- in the first verse of chapter 6 is, heck no, by no means. But that is the question that people are asking. Why is God's wrath being poured out on me for doing something that demonstrates God's glory? That doesn't sound fair. We'll talk about that in chapter 9. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. It's a nice little parenthetical statement. Only a, a human would be arrogant enough to think that God is unrighteousness is unrighteous when he is demonstrating his wrath on those who violate his will. God has given us a way to live our lives. We know it from the created order. We know it from the conscience written on our heart. Chapter 1, chapter 2. We are without excuse. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Over and over again, you are without excuse. So if we're out without excuse, we can't blame God for our problems. God, you messed up. You did something wrong. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? If God did not pour out his wrath on sinful humanity, how could God be a righteous judge? For him to be the judge, there has to be a standard by which we are being judged. If God never changes, if he is holy, then that standard, which is his holiness, never changes. If God judges by the moving norms of humanity, where today one thing is right and another thing is wrong, and the next day the first thing is wrong and the next thing is right, how can he be a righteous judge who is impartial? If you remember in chapter 2, He told us he's going to judge everything without partiality. He is not going to play favorites. So whether you feel like God's wrath is being poured upon you unjustly, it's not. The problem is not with God. The problem is with you. You think I'm beating on you, right? You have nothing. We haven't gotten started yet. The first half of chapter 3 is going to be the end of his argument about the bad news. And it's about all of us apart from Christ. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? I'm, I'm, I'm supporting his mission. God has to have me. Because if I didn't sin, how would God ever demonstrate his grace? Well, God does demonstrate his grace. But this is a very human argument. 
I've heard this before. God needs us because he needs us to worship him. As if without our measly worship, God would be less than God than who he really is. God doesn't need us. God has chosen to bestow his love upon us through the person of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to demonstrate his goodness or his wrath. We are called to be obedient to him. He doesn't change to match our taste of the day. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Huh. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, if you want to look at one of the biggest arguments against the doctrine of justification by faith alone, there are those who believe it teaches, well, therefore, I can do anything I want, and God has to forgive me. And that's what chapter 6 is all about. Why should I not sin if sinning brings more grace, and grace is a good thing? And chapter 6 is because you're a slave to something. You're going to be a slave to sin, if you keep after sin, or you're going to be a servant of God if you do what he requires of you. It's not God's problem. So we'll continue that discussion when we get to chapter 6. Their condemnation is just. Those people who are blaspheming God by saying, by saying, my sin works to God's advantage. No, it doesn't. Never has, never will. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we better off than the Gentiles? Well, didn't he just say in, in verse 1 and 2 that yes, we are. We, had the, we, the Jews, had the oracles of God. Aren't we better off? Chapter, I mean, verse 9 says, no, not at all. Why? Because God is not going to show partiality. He's not going to. If you had been part of the covenant, and if you had done what you were supposed to do, it would have been a great thing. But you didn't do it. Now, I will inject right here that God has not abandoned the Jewish community. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with what about the Jews. And we'll have a long discussion God is still working out his plan for the Jewish community. But when it comes to standing before a holy God on the day of judgment, the fact that you're circumcised or uncircumcised, the fact that you went to a synagogue or you went to a church, the fact that you ate kosher hot dogs or you didn't eat kosher hot dogs is not going to be the criteria by which you are judged. It doesn't make a difference. Do you remember the discussion in chapter 2? Those who do what is right will be okay. Those who do what is wrong will suffer the wrath of God. God does not show partiality. 
That's the criteria. Okay? That's the criteria. All I've got to do is do what's right. Whew. I'm off the hook. I can handle that. Ha, ha, ha. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. I said, we're getting to the conclusion. To a Jewish community, there's only two types of people in the world. Jews and Gentiles, oftentimes referred to as the Greeks. If you're a Greek, there's two kinds of people in the world, the Greeks and the barbarians. So we're barbarian Gentiles or something. It doesn't matter. Everyone is being condemned by the law. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. The Gentile, the pagans, they didn't have the law. It doesn't matter. It was written on their heart. But I would have done better if I had had it written down in front of me. No, you wouldn't because the Jews had it and it didn't do them any good. It's like God gave his law to everybody in our conscience. And just to make sure, at the end of the day, nobody thought that, well, if I had been given a written copy, I would have followed it. He picked out one community and he said, here, take it, do it. And even they muffed it. So whether you have it written on a tablet of stone, whether you have it written on a parchment, or whether you have it written on your heart, the law is going to condemn you because you can't keep it. If I want to get to heaven by my works, I'm toast. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, as it is written, as it is written, what we're going to see here are a series of quotes from the Old Testament. Somewhere up here, I have all of them out so you could actually look up the references to each of them. It's like you Jewish community may think that I'm just making this stuff up. And Paul is saying, nope, it's been there all along. It was in the prophets. It was in the Psalms of David. It's always been there. I didn't make this up. You may think, well, I'm a pretty good guy. No, you're not. Here it comes. Are you ready? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Question, who is included in the word none? None is righteous, no, not one. Now, we do know that there was one that was righteous. The God-man, Jesus Christ. But what he's talking about here is all of humanity apart from Christ. Apart, apart from Christ himself and his fulfillment of the law, and apart from Christ, us having a relationship with Christ. Apart from Christ, no one is, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside Who's included in the word all? 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and righteousness. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You depressed yet? Hmm? Fast forward. No, you want me to read verse 21. I may not read it today. Or I might. What is he telling us about all of humanity? Wait a minute, teacher. Wait a minute. I know a person who's a pretty good guy. I know a person who's a good guy who doesn't go to church. I know a person who's a good guy that goes to a synagogue. I know a person who's a good guy who goes to a mosque. I know good people. I know people who love their kids, who love their spouses, who pay their taxes on time, who pay their bills, who are nice to their neighbors. I know these people. And you're telling me that no one does what is right? Yes, that's what we're saying. Let's look at the two relationships and talk about the differences. I could take everyone in this room, call in some survey team. They could ask you a series of questions, and I could put all of this class on a bell curve of who's good and who's not, okay? You know, I could get the survey people to go down a list, you know, do you kick your dog? Ooh. Do you love your kids? Ah. Are you nice to your spouse? Most of the time. Are are you faithful at work? And I could go through that list, and some of you would turn out really good, some of you would be eh, and most of us would be somewhere in the middle. That's why it's called a bell curve, right? Then the people in the top half of the bell curve could sit there and spend all of their lives looking down at the people on the bottom half of this bell curve for not measuring up. And the people on the top half would think they're right with God. Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I go to my neighbor, I shake hands with him, it's a wonderful day, how your yard looks nice and all that, but it conceals what's in my heart. Oh, yeah. My, dri- my neighbor drives up in a new Corvette, and I go, hmm. <laughs> Maybe we ought to get to that in just a moment. Right. We look at the outside, God knows the truth. So I've got this bell curve. And the people at the top half are looking down at the people at the bottom half. And in fact, the people that are, you know, two sigma up, you know the way a bell curve works, they break it out into standard deviation. The people who are two sigma up, they really, they don't even look down on the people in the top half who aren't below them. And the people who are three sigma up, I mean, they're really looking down on people. In fact, they'll probably start a religion. 
They will start a religion, and if you're not in my Three Sigma group, you're in trouble. Sorry. We see this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the Pharisees. No matter where you are on this bell curve, there's going to be someone below you, and you're going to look down on them, you're going to point your finger and say, I'm pretty good, and you're not. That's the way we as humans work, and that's to be expected, I guess. We're always finding someone worse than us. I've told you this before, but I just think it's so hilarious. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the statement, well, at least I haven't killed anybody, as if somehow that is the standard of righteousness. I was listening to the radio years ago, and they were inter- interviewing a drug dealer, a big name, and his comment was, at least I've never killed a group of people before. <laughs> I don't care what it is. You can find somebody that's worse than you. And if your goal in life is to feel good, you find those people and you write books and magazine articles about how wretched they are. That's the way we as human beings look at things. And you know, the truth is there are good pagans, good Muslims, good Jews, good Baptists, good fill-in-the-blank with whatever group you want, good Republicans, good Democrats who love their spouses and love their kids and pay their bills on time. There are. Hmm? Exactly. But that's not the standard that God is judging by. God is not judging us on a curve. God's judgment is really pretty simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and do it from the day you're born till the day you die, and you will be righteous before God. But wait a minute. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Wait a minute. There's lots of people looking for God, aren't there? Well, yes and no. There are a lot of people looking for the things of God, but they don't want God. There are those who understand that true happiness that a meaningful life can only be found, well, it's not being found in what they're doing. So they're looking for something else. They're looking for a solution to their problem, whatever their problem is. They're looking for a solution to the fact that life doesn't seem to have meaning. They're looking for a solution to the fact that the relationships aren't working. They're looking for a solution to their problem, but their problem can only be found, the solution can only be found in God, and they don't want God. There are people seeking after a lot of different things. We use that phrase, seekers. People who are seeking after God, who are seeking after the truth. And that might be true. 
that they're seeking after what they think is the truth and they're seeking after something that they think might be God, but they're not seeking after God. Back to chapter 1. They were given the opportunity to worship the Creator and they chose to worship something else, so they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. There is no one who is righteous, no one who understands. What does that mean? I know some pagans who are pretty smart. In fact, they're smarter than I am. You can read their books, you can read their articles. You may even talk to them in person. And some of them are really sharp. What do you mean they don't understand? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you have no fear of the Lord, you do not know wisdom and true knowledge. You can know a lot of things. A lot of things. But the wisdom of God is only found in the fear of God. And the fear of God means that you have an awe and respect for who God is and you live your life accordingly. It's an interesting phenomena, and we could have a long discussion in this, which comes first, right behavior or right thought? And the answer, my answer is, as usual in questions like this, yes. Right behavior leads to right thought. Right thought leads to right behavior. Right behavior leads to right thought. You get the picture, right? It is a upward spiral as opposed to what we saw in chapter 1 that was a downward spiral. There are certain truths that you will not understand until you follow and are obedient to God in the first place. That's just the way the world works. None No one, none of humanity understands the ways of God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. What does it mean to be worthless? Come on, it's an easy... Without value. value. How many of you, and do not raise your hands, because you would embarrass me, because I would have to, oh, you're going to leave now? Go ahead, we'll talk about you. Why don't all the worthless people, oh no. Why don't all the wonderful choir members leave? How many of you have ever wrestled with the thoughts of whether your life has value? Don't raise your hand, because I would have to raise mine. We, as human beings, worship worship everything in the world. And there's that wonderful verse that I always have to look up every time I talk about it, that says in the Old Testament, they worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And that is the King James Version. We become like that which we worship. And if we're worshiping idols, we become worthless. Why do people feel like their life has no meaning? Because sometimes their life has no meaning. The reality is the meaning is found 
in an understanding of God and his ways. Chapter 12. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wait a minute. Didn't we just say a while ago that we all know people that do good things? Yes, in the eyes of human beings. But if I'm going to stand before a righteous God whose only standard is perfect holiness, then there is no one who does good. It is interesting We will talk about this later. In fact, we'll talk about it in a couple of chapters when we talk about Adam. And we'll talk about the doctrine of original sin. The fact that we were born sinners and what that means. If you're a good hardcore Calvinist, you use the phrase total depravity. What that means is that every aspect of our humanity has been tainted by sin. It does not mean that we're as bad as we could be. Theologians use the phrase absolute depravity to talk about that. This is not saying we're all as bad as we could be. We could be worse. Trust me. You look at history and find the worst person you could find, they could have been worse. You could be worse. We're not saying here that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. What we are saying is they're bad enough to not stand before a holy God. No one does anything good that will merit their way to salvation. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We have two old verses talking about Your tongue. Why do you think that is? Because the tongue says who we really are. And what does it say? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Okay, maybe I'm not really lying. But I'm telling a selected version of the truth that's going to deceive you a little bit. Or maybe I'm just lying to you. It is interesting that we've gotten so used to lying that sometimes it's just second nature to us. It's just easier than telling the truth. When I was in college, I was the uh, president of the youth choir for a while. And I would call the choir members who hadn't been there and encourage them to come back to choir. And I had this young lady who always told me, yes, I will be there tomorrow. Always, every Saturday she told me this. And every Sunday she was not in the choir. And she finally told me. Oh, I just tell you that to get you off the phone. (laughs) Did she think something was wrong? No. She had a goal, that was to get me off the phone, and that's what it took to get me off, and that was it. Now, we wouldn't do that, right? Our lips are deceiving The venom of asp is under their lips. What's an asp? A dangerous snake. We always think of asp and Cleopatra. It's a venomous snake whose bite can kill you quickly. 
What does that, that have to do with our tongue, with our speech? It has everything to do with it because our tongue, our speech, can harm people more than we can imagine. You've heard the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, harm me. Well, I understand why we tell that to kids because, you know, in the world people are going to say bad things and you've got to get over it. But the reality is the sticks and stones may break your bones, but your bones might heal before your heart does because of the words. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Why is that important? Why did God bother to give us a tongue? I know why he did. To sing praises to God. To bring glory to God. To encourage one another. To lift up, to speak the truth to one another. Not to tear each other apart. Yet, that's what we do with our tongue. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We curse God. We are bitter for what God has given us. We deserve more and God didn't give it to us. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. What is peace? Peace is more than just the absence of war. Peace is right relationships. Peace is a right relationship with you and your spouse, you and your children, you and God, you and your neighbor, you and you and you. Blessed are the peacemakers. But we don't have peace. Why? Well, because our tongues are, we're speaking like asp, and we, our feet rush to commit sin. What is the bottom line of the whole section? There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the conclusion. We have talked repeatedly about what the fear of God means. It is a righteous awe and respect for God that drives us to be obedient to him. And that is what is missing from the world apart from Christ. Now are you depressed? You want me to read verse 21, but I'm not going to do it. We need to understand. We need to understand that the world, apart from Christ, is condemned. We need to understand that. We need to understand that what our community, our society views as being good is not good before God. Now, does this mean that we go around viewing everyone with suspicion and believing the worst about everybody? No. There's a whole other set of discussions about treating people with respect because they're made in the image of God. There's discussions about trust, and we do trust people. I mean, it's like I've said before. I had a friend who was in the computer business, and he did a lot of work with Mormons, and he said he loved it because if they said they were going to do something, they did it. Yeah, we'll work out the contracts and the paperwork, but if I said I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. 
And that's good. You can be a cynical person and think everybody's out to rob you, whether you agree with this passage or not. Or you can recognize the image of God in all of humanity and treat them with dignity, even though you acknowledge the fact that they're lost and they're sinners and they're in need of a Savior. And that's what this passage teaches us. The second half of chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3 are there to convince us that apart from God, we're not going to make it. End of story. Verse 19. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Though by the works of the law, no one is going to be justified. And for that word law, which he's talking here about both the written law of God and the law of God written on our hearts, by that law, no one will be declared right. As I looked at this verse, I thought, you know, many of us have gone through in our lives many medical scans of some sort. Been through a few, right? Lots. I've been through a bunch. And that scan, you sit there and they're looking at your insides and they're looking for bad stuff. And unfortunately, they find it. They do. And it's good that they find it. But that scan is not going to cure you. All that scan is doing is showing where the problem is. The law is not going to save you. Your works of any kind are not going to save you. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Since through the law comes a knowledge of sin, all it does is makes it crystal clear to us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that gets us to verse 21. You may have an uh, inclination at times to skip certain classes. I would recommend that you not skip next week. Because next week is the key to the whole book. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. There is a righteousness that has nothing to do with how good you are. And it has everything to do with how good Jesus Christ is. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would acknowledge our sin and cling to the cross for our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.